Welcome to We're Building, the podcast showcasing and celebrating the very best of black businesses and entrepreneurs across the UK. My name is Godwin Usman. And I'm Daniel Pedu. Today's guest is Tommy Williams, who is the Impact Investment Manager at Unlimited and also an e-commerce professional. He's also a Forbes contributor. It's a pleasure to have you, Tommy. Welcome. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks a lot for, for having me. So you've been very busy, um, and we'll talk a bit more about what you've been doing more recently. Um, but let's start with uh, more of an introduction to kind of who you are and, and more about your background. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess starting from the beginning. So I grew up, well, I was actually born in Sierra Leone, uh, which is a small country in West Africa. Uh, and my parents moved here when I was four because um, we had a civil war at the time, um, grew up in East London, um, Canning Town to be precise, and then moved over to, to Dagenham, uh, which is on the border of, of London and, and Essex. And was fortunate enough through good teachers, good parents, to get into Oxford University, um, studied economics and management there. It was a different experience um, compared to where I grew up, uh, but certainly learned a lot, met some good people and, and built up a decent network. After university, I took a job at Goldman Sachs. So I did a bunch of internships um, during university um, at a few different places and then was fortunate enough to get a graduate offer at Goldman Sachs in their equities division. So I was specifically focused on US equities. So that's looking at US companies, but for European clients, which is why I was sat in the the London office. Uh, Specifically, my function was a sales function. Um, So I did that for about two years. But I'd say after about nine months and realized I wanted to do something different, um, an opportunity came up two years in to go and work for an e-commerce business in Nigeria called Jumia, which is essentially Amazon um, of Africa. It was now, now the company's substantial. They did an IPO uh, last year, but at the time it was still a relatively early stage business. So managed to rotate around a few different areas of the business, which included helping to manage their social media team, working on some strategy stuff in terms of expanding outside of outside of Nigeria, and then also taking a look at some of the beauty uh, side of the business because they sold beauty products specifically for black women. Um, after doing that for a while, decided to come back to London and then set up a beauty e-commerce business called All Shades Covered, uh, essentially selling hair extensions, hair care products uh, to black women. Um, did that for about three years. We managed to raise money from some relatively well-known investors, um, had a small but but very good team who we worked with um, and then eventually that business came to a point where we had to decide or try at least to either really scale it up or just keep it running as a going concern at that point um, I decided to stay in e-commerce so I went and worked for a company called Master of Malt who effectively sell alcohol online um, similar to my role at Jimmy it was very business development orientated mm-hmm. so working on different projects like launching a subscription business for them helping them to expand their sales on Amazon and a bunch of other markets, um, as well as running a few e-commerce projects on the side, um, sort of side hustle businesses, you could say, um, which were a bit under the radar, I guess. um, But that's what I was doing in my spare time. Um, And yeah, I mean, as as you introduced, most recently I've taken up a role at Unlimited um, as an investment manager, which kind of brings my experience together. So starting my career in investment banking, but then also working with and, and starting e-commerce businesses. The role I'm going to be doing with, with Unlimited is effectively investing in early stage businesses that create social change 
um, and the social change that we're particularly focused on with the current fund is um, access to employment. So the types of companies that would fall under that bracket are companies help doing apprenticeships, so helping young people get into good jobs, um, companies which are helping disabled people get into work, um, some people, companies which are um, trying to help disenfranchised people uh, like the BAME community, for example, or people from low-income backgrounds to move forward. And, and I guess going back to the start of my explanation, it ties in quite nicely with the social mobility aspects, which given I grew up in, in East London um, and have had quite a varied experience, um, is an area that I'm particularly passionate about. But yeah, I think that's, that's, my, that's my quick, <laughs> quick uh, background. Uh, you, you mentioned a varied um, experience you've had over the years, you know, going to Oxford um, and, you know, being from East London. Tell us a bit more about what that was like, especially coming from a comprehensive school and then uh, make your way to Oxford? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I'm, I'm a relatively open-minded person. So I think the way I saw going up there was I wanted to try and learn as much as possible, integrate with different, different types of people um, and just make the most of it, really. I, I think... And, and this is this is probably not specific to Oxford, but probably specific to a lot of a lot of universities in the UK. You can go down two avenues, I guess. One is you find the ACS or the Afro Caribbean Society, and you stay within that social circle, uh, which some people did. Um, I was part of the society; I just didn't spend all of my time there. Or you try and integrate with the broader university, and I think I did the latter, um, which is actually benefited me in the sense that it's made me a lot more open-minded mm. um in terms of difficulties the first couple of weeks were awkward uh, i won't i won't deny that it was just you know when you're thrown into a completely different environment to what you're used to people talk differently they act differently that took a couple of weeks to adjust with uh, but i had a i found a group of friends who i really got along with and then it kind of just expanded from there so yeah i'd say initial awkwardness but overall it was a pleasant experience i mean there are issues which are well documented in the press um, yeah. around being a black guy or, or someone from a low-income background in Oxford. But overall, I'd say it was an enjoyable experience, but it was, it was somewhat awkward at the beginning. Mm. And, and which, just out of interest, which college um, were, you, were you at? So I was at Wadham. And I think that's, okay. that's, that's a really good question, actually, because so Wadham is known as the left-wing progressive college. Um, and that maybe is one of the reasons why I had a positive experience. There are certainly colleges which almost never accept black people. I haven't accepted a black student in like the last 10 years. So maybe if you went to one of those, um, I don't want to stereotype and say just the posh colleges, because there are some posh colleges that are very open-minded. But maybe if you went to a college which was less open-minded, um, you wouldn't have as good of an experience. So yeah, that's a really good question. Actually. I mean, yeah, really good question because Wadham is, is very forward thinking um, yeah. and there were a couple of other black people in my college. Cool. And, and talk to us a bit about how you made a decision to go to Goldman Sachs. So I, so when I was in sixth form, there was an organization called the Windsor Fellowship I think they still exist. And they did a, a sort of internship uh, in the summer in partnership with Deutsche Bank. 
where you could apply and it was specifically for people who went to state schools um, and preferably low performing schools where you could do a summer internship at Deutsche Bank in the summer between sixth form and, um, and university. So I did, a, I did a summer internship there for, I think it was four weeks. Yeah, it was four weeks. And um, yeah, so that kind of opened my eyes up to, um, to the world of finance. I'll be pragmatic and blunt in the sense that the only reason I wanted to go into finance was because, <laughs> of, the, because of the salary. I read in the newspaper, some guy, uh, some hedge fund manager made like a hundred million pounds and I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. It, it wasn't it wasn't like I fell in love with economics one day. It was like, no, I saw how much people can get paid. Um yeah. and then wanted to do that. And then my mum actually um worked at KPMG but in the catering department. Mm-hmm. So she worked in like the restaurant stuff. So she used to always talk about finance and it being a good career and and all of that kind of stuff. So maybe that kind of played some sort of role as well. Um so yeah, so I did internships when I was relatively young. When I got to university, I did a spring week um, at Goldman in my first year mm-hmm. uh, in the securities division. And then the next summer, I actually interned at Molis, which is a boutique investment bank. Um, and then I did a bunch of other random internships and startups and stuff just to diversify my CV. Uh, but yeah, fortunately, towards the time I was graduating, an opportunity came up that they were looking for a grad um, on the US equity sales desk, interviewed. I had, a, I had a ridiculous mug. I think I had 22 interviews, something ridiculous wow. like that. Uh, not all, not 22 separate days, like I think four or five days, um, but spread across all of the days, which, which isn't that, it, it's not atypical um, for, for sales and trading. Sales and trading, they want you to meet as many people as possible, particularly if you didn't do the summer internship, which, mm-hmm. is, their, which is their preference as far as recruiting goes. But yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I'll, I'll be direct with you and say my decision-making career-wise when I was 16 to 21 was purely financial. And you could argue that the interest yeah. was born out of the... Basically, it was, it's kind of like chicken and egg, right? It's like, am I interested <laughs> in this because it pays well? Yeah. Or am I genuinely interested in it? And I would say I, I'm definitely more the former in the sense that at that point, I was more interested in learning about markets because yeah. I knew it was a job that would pay well. Wow. And how did you choose to be on a sales desk? Why, why the sales desk? Because I can imagine that there's money all over different departments and stuff. Why, why that? Yeah, so I did my summer internship at Molis in IBD, so M&A. Um, it just wasn't for me very hierarchical. Um, it, very, very long hours, as, as most people are aware of. Um, mm-hmm not much autonomy until much later in your career which is a bit of an issue for me um what i mean by that is you're kind of just a junior then you're a bit less junior and a bit less junior and then eventually i don't know 10 years in maybe you do get a lot of autonomy but it's, it takes a while and i didn't want a career where it would take that long for me to get autonomy um having said that it's a fantastic path to go down um you learn a huge amount of financial modeling, all of that kind of stuff. So the exit opportunities are fantastic. Uh, but it just wasn't for me on a personal level. After having spent 10 weeks in the summer doing that, so I kind of knew I didn't want to do that essentially. Yeah. So that was an easy decision to not, to, to not go down that route. Um, and then at the time, it's probably changed now because of all the fintech and all that kind of stuff. But at the time, the other division which most people looked at was sales and trading. Um, I actually wanted to be a trader when I was younger, probably 16 to, to 19, 20. Mm-hmm. During my spring week, 
um, at Goldman, I actually just realized there are people who are better at this than me. They're just better. Like I'm not going to, again, I'm quite a pragmatic person mm-hmm. and there are people who understood the mathematical side of it as well as the risk reward side of it a bit better than I could. Um, and more intuitively. And if you're going to yeah. go into an environment like, like that and you're not intuitively getting stuff um, and it's as cutthroat as trading is, odds are you're not going to succeed in the long run again i'm not trying to pull people off something if they don't understand it straight away Mm -hmm. i just think sometimes it's useful to know what your skill set is and and my skill set was okay but it certainly wasn't good enough that i would have excelled um on that side of the business so yeah the only other side that was left and i was quite a sociable person uh was sales i've always been interested in companies um Mm -hmm. never really been interested in like fx or or bonds or anything like yeah. that it's always been equities for me so yeah so equity sales um mm-hmm. was a natural natural place to look at makes sense last question on on this um so what happened the nine months what was the point the moment that you thought this isn't for me i just want to get out i don't know i wouldn't say there was there wasn't like a specific day where i don't know my boss told me to do something and I got angry. It wasn't, it wasn't as dramatic as that. I think it was more, and by the way, the people I worked with were, were great and I worked with some incredibly intelligent people and, and the, the environment was actually quite fun. It was just maybe six to nine months and just realised, like, is this really what I want to spend the next or the most productive years of my life doing? Mm-hmm. Um, as well as the realisation that money again, this is kind of counterintuitive given I actually made the decision based on money, realizing that money wasn't enough to motivate me to stay in a particular role. Um, and I find, and I'm sure you guys probably know this, when you're doing a job which is quite demanding, you do need to, in order, well, A, it's, quite, it's demanding, but it's also competitive. Mm-hmm. And in order to do well in a job that's very demanding, and also very competitive, i.e. there's very, it's a pyramid structure, right? Only 5% actually make it to the senior roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the people who tend to succeed do tend to be people who have a genuine enthusiasm for what they're doing, um, or people who just care about money and are willing to power through. I'm not one of those people, unfortunately. <laughs> so. Yeah, so for me, it was like just looking at some of the senior guys and thinking, yeah, I don't really, no, I don't want to be you because that's a childish way to think about work, right? You don't have to be anyone just because they're more senior than doesn't mean you turn into them. It was more, I did, I don't want to do what you, what they were doing, mm-hmm. but I did have a huge amount of respect um, for the people I worked for. It was just a mismatch, um, which maybe if I was more mature, or I had a mentor advising me when I was making my career decisions earlier, would have, would have realized um, at, at a younger age. But as I said, it was a fantastic opportunity. It's actually brought a lot of opportunities after leaving. Uh, because of the network and, and obviously the credibility on the CV. Truly really amazing. Um, and then post, you know, Goldman Sachs, um, you, you you move straight into uh, to Rocket, um, working for Jumia. Um, tell us a bit more about the build-up to, to, you know, changing your career and um, how that overall experience was um, at Jumia. Yeah, so that was random. Um, I'm not Nigerian, by the way, so my yeah. parents thought I'd lost it because <laughs> I'm not Nigerian and I'm going to go work in Nigeria. Um, and this was in 2014. I think in the last five years, we've seen a lot more people make a switch to go and work in Africa. But back then, it was still a bit, still a bit of a, a bold move, particularly if you're not from there. Um, 
it was one of those scenarios, right? I know sometimes this probably sounds unstructured, but the opportunity came up. I was really interested in Africa at the time. As I said, I was born in Sierra Leone, which is in West Africa. So culturally, it's quite similar to, to Nigeria. And I just thought there was a huge opportunity. Rocket paid quite well, not as well as the investment banking, but um, it was effectively getting an opportunity to go and work in another country. I was interested in e-commerce anyway, and Rocket paid relatively well, and the opportunity came up. I never went there with the intention that this is where I'm going to go and build my career. It was more like I want to leave. I know I'm, I don't want to do this. Um, here's an opportunity to go and experience, have an amazing experience um, for a while, whilst still obviously being paid okay. Um, and then I'll try, I'll kind of figure things out after that. And it was a fantastic experience, by the way. Um, had met some good people. Um, yeah, it was, it was fascinating because that was, it was at a point when tech in, in Africa was really just starting to take off. Um, again, things have accelerated aggressively in the last five years, which is fantastic to see. But it was also great to get an experience relatively early on. Um, obviously, Rocket can be a bit of an intense um, organization to be in. Um, but yeah, that was that was that was the main reason. It was it just came up. It was a great opportunity. I had an interest in Africa. I had an interest in e-commerce, um, and it just felt like a good thing to do at that point in my life. Before before you carry on. Could you please, for, for people that don't know, could you explain what Rocket do? Yeah, so Rocket is, I mean, it's a huge company now. They've gotten in like a proper venture capital fund. And, but the, 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 rock, the core Rocket or the Rocket that I would say I went to work for at least was what you'd probably consider a business builder or a venture builder. So what they do is they, they either acquire a very early stage business in, an, in a region um, and then build the business out or they hire someone um, from McKinsey or Goldman or wherever um, to actually go and launch a business concept, which they have. Um, they, they, they are operational in Europe. So it's founded by the, the guys who founded Zalando, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people would know the fashion company, uh, but their bread and butter is setting up businesses in emerging markets. So they're very present in South and, and sorry, typically the emerging markets that people, most in Western investors don't want to go to. So think um, Pakistan, Malaysia, um, obviously at the time, Nigeria, um, some Middle Eastern countries as well. So what they'll do is they'll have a model like a, a fashion e-commerce company and they have a fashion e-commerce business in Africa. They'll have one in the Middle East. Um, they'll have one in Southeast Asia or a couple in Southeast Asia across a few different countries. Um, and yeah, that's the easiest way to think about it. It's founded by the Samway brothers who were successful entrepreneurs um, who'd sold, um, there was, well, there's obviously Zalando, but I think they sold another business, uh, which was a sort of Groupon type website prior to that as well. Um, and yeah, they've had some successes. So some companies have done well. Um, some companies haven't, haven't done so well. Obviously, it, it very much hinges on the premise that they're going to be able to actually build the businesses they want in those economies which tend to be quite volatile. So yeah, I'd say they've had mixed success, but they certainly have made some sort of, some contribution to the ecosystems in all of these countries because prior to them going in and really investing significant funds in those markets, not many tech companies existed um, right. in, in, in Africa or in Southeast Asia. And I, I think in, in Jumia's case, they, um, they came from North Africa, right? From, from right? 
Um, yeah, I've, if I if I recall the story correctly, there was a the first version was in Morocco or Egypt. I, yeah. I can't remember exactly, but I think you're right. And then the model got. I think they actually. There was well again. This is going deep into the story, but I think there were a couple of guys who were running an e-commerce business in Nigeria, um, and then those people merged with Rocket, or Rocket gave them money to actually accelerate it, and then so on and so forth. Um, yeah. But I do think the uh, the first um, office, so to speak, was was in North Africa. Right. Um, but then tell us, because you were you were doing BD there, but tell us a bit more about um, that experience and who you were facing off with. Yeah, I mean, so BD at the time was very much, again, the roles were very random. There were, I, it, I didn't have, so they had quite a few people from the UK and, and, and Europe. And some people had very specific functions like head of sales. Some people had, there was a team called the SWAT team, so S-W-A-T. Mm -hmm. um, who basically jumped around the business where there was a demand for resource um, and strategic sort of management or thought. So as I said, for the first half of my time there, I was managing the social media team, um, so scaling up Facebook and all of those sorts of channels and selling on those platforms, uh, working with partners as well to market on those platforms. So partners like Huawei and LG and and those sorts of companies. And then the second half was spent largely working with the, um, with the CEO on how, on the help and um, sort of coming up with a strategy for how they can expand the business outside of Lagos. Because what they found, which is probably, I'd say re relatively common um, in, in Nigeria, and the same thing applies here with London, is when you set up a business, a lot of it is centered around the capital. But Nigeria mm -hmm. is so vast and has such a huge population outside of Lagos, it was how we can actually slightly tweak the model um, so that it would actually resonate with people in different regions because what's relevant in Lagos isn't necessarily relevant in Kano or in Port Harcourt and all of those sorts of areas across Nigeria. Yeah. So it was trying to, to almost not pivot, that's too, too strong a word, but adjust the business model and the marketing and the communication so that it's relevant for those different regions. You know, um, what did you leave Nigeria with in terms of like skills and um, enthusiasm? So basic understanding of an e-commerce business and the various mm -hmm. functions. Um, e-commerce is somewhat different in the sense that if you think of it, it, it spans traditional retails of products. You're actually selling a physical product. Uh, you've got your digital marketing to be on top of. You've got potentially a marketplace which Jumia had, um, as well as you actually buying stock and selling it to people. You've got the operations and logistics, uh, which is probably the most difficult part in, in third world countries or in developing countries um, of actually how you get in these products to people in a cost efficient manner. Um, so just, I guess, getting an understanding of how all of those different areas interlink with each other um, was probably the biggest takeaway, um, as well as just getting a, a better understanding of Nigeria, right? I mean, if you're anyone who's, again, I'm not Nigerian, but if you're anyone who's interested in in doing stuff in Africa, that's probably the first, certainly in the top three economies you want to have an understanding of. So, so that was also useful and probably the primary reason I went there, um, if I'm honest. Okay, and then at what point did you decide to come back and and how did you meet your, your business partner for your, your first venture? Because I read that you met him out there, is that right? Yeah, so we, we actually worked together at Jumia. 
Um, he'd been there a lot longer. He worked in the, uh, the sort of sales function, um, helping to lead that team. So we'd, we'd met out there. Um, and then when I came back, I started working on this beauty e-commerce idea. Um, he'd, he'd left Jimmy about six months later um, or a short while later. And then, yeah, we just thought let's, let's link up and, um, and set this thing up. And he, he managed the operational side of things. And then I did a lot of the, um, the again, the biz dev stuff, which is probably a bit more relevant for my, my background, uh, both from a sales perspective, working in finance, obviously in sales, the, what you're selling varies, but the actual selling process doesn't vary that much. Um, and then, and then obviously my experience at junior was relevant to BD as well. Okay. And, and why did you choose that business? What's the backstory of, of that in terms of how did the idea come about? And then why did you choose to pursue it and, and not something else? So one of the things, and I think this is something as more and more black founders seek venture funding, they need to be aware of is if you're going to start a business that you intend to be venture backed, by the way, you shouldn't do it that way around. You should actually just start a business to raise. You shouldn't start a business model because you think it's going to be able to raise venture funding. That's your incentives are a bit misaligned. If that's the thought process you have. Um, but, but I wanted to build something which was huge. Um, I do. And this is just an, a guesstimate. I may be completely wrong, but I certainly think as far in consumer goods, so I'm excluding something like oil, for instance. Mm-hmm. I think black hair and beauty is the biggest industry, um, very much driven by hair extensions and, and makeup and all of that kind of stuff. But it's a huge industry. Um, the reason I actually wanted to start it in the Europe is because, again, if you, if you recall back to 2014, 2015, you didn't really see... The, a black hair care aisle in boots or super drugs or or anywhere like that now things have improved um I, I won't i won't lie when you walk into most boots in in london you will see a black hair care section it's not huge but it's there and they are actually saying selling a lot of the right products which is a positive change but at the time there wasn't really an offering um so again it's a it's a mixture of there's a commercial element, certainly. Um, I, don't, I don't use a lot of the products, so there's not, there certainly wasn't like this huge affinity for the products because I'd be lying if I said there was. Um, I'm not a hairstylist, and I don't necessarily use uh, the products myself, um, other than like shampoo and conditioner or something for guys. Um, but again, there was, it was also the altruistic element, I guess, was trying to build something which could actually serve the community um, so women aren't having to to go and shop in packs and all of these sorts of places where they're typically not black owned. Um, so you've got this huge industry where, yeah. which is obviously taking a lot of cash out of the, out of the demographic, but then the cash is actually being spent on people who aren't from the demographic, mm. um, which was a bit, that was probably the, the, where my frustration came from, which, which actually led to me wanting to set up the business. No, that makes sense. And, and what would you say was the main challenge and benefit of, you and your co-founder both being men um, and focusing on women products. What was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is, if I could do it again, we should have had a third co-founder who was female and we tried to get someone later down the line um, just to to answer the question straight away. Um, We did have girls in the team, but I do think, 
and this is a view I didn't have prior to starting um, or doing ASC. I do think nine out of 10 times for a business to be successful, one of the founders actually has to experience the problem that they're trying to solve um, because there are small nuances that you just miss, whether it's a marketing campaign, whether it's, I don't know, something that you're thinking of in a very, in, in very pragmatic terms, like, oh, the customer's not going to care about this because it's such a minor problem. But in reality, that's actually something that really gets on their nerves. So if you're able to fix that small thing, it makes a huge difference. It gives you a USP. Um, so I said the main disadvantage was just missing small, small nuances, which, which I think you would have actually understood if you were a consumer. Um, again, just being direct. So even now, I guess looking at companies from the investment standpoint, I'm not saying I wouldn't invest in a business where, um, where the founder doesn't have, doesn't experience the problem, but it certainly helps if they experience the problem or a close relative of theirs experienced the problem or, or something along those lines. Mm. Um, and, and the second factor, I guess, which kind of ties into that is you're much more likely to go through the hard times um, if, if you experience the problem yourself because it just naturally makes you more passionate about finding a solution. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, that would, that would be my main, I guess, my main points around the difference between, yeah. I mean, the question was being guys trying to start a pro- company which sells products to women. So th- those would be my main two points. I mean, you could argue there were a couple of advantages because you were able to look at the industry from the outside in um, and spot a lot of problems that someone who's just been using whatever's there wouldn't spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably an advantage. But I- I'd say a bigger advantage would be um, actually experiencing the problem yourself. And if you obviously don't experience the problem yourself and you, you, uh, you want to start a business, then you should try and find someone who does and bring them on board as early as possible. So Tommy, I mean, these are amazing things you're saying. We've heard much about kind of you, your journey from, you know, Oxford to kind of corporate world, IB, and then moving to kind of um, working overseas. Um, Tell us a bit more about your journey as um, an investment manager at Unlimited. Um, And also, you know, the amazing news recently about your social enterprise support fund and what's that what that's all about yeah so so as i said about six yeah about six months ago i started thinking about what i want to do long term um as has probably been obvious from this call i've jumped around quite a bit throughout my career um and i was thinking about what ties this all together and i can something i can focus on for a five, 10, potentially more years. Um, so naturally, and this, is, this isn't very odd, but naturally going into the investing space, particularly focused on early stage companies, was, was a good direction to go in given my background in banking and then early stage businesses. But I actually don't necessarily agree with the traditional venture cap- capital business model for a lot of businesses, certainly the types of businesses that I would want to work with. Um, and as I said, growing up in, um, East London, being born in Sierra Leone and going to somewhere like Oxford and seeing the disparities in terms of what life looks like if you're from a low income background versus what life looks like if you're fortunate enough or privileged enough, um, was just something that sits quite, 
personal to me. So I knew I wanted to go into impact investing. And I was actually talking to a few different companies at the time. An opportunity came up with Unlimited, um, who are a charity actually, um, who have recently got into, recently set up a couple of funds to invest in companies, but they're also have a huge, a huge charity up that give grants and things like that to companies. Um, and what I liked most about the role here is it's very much focused around access to employment um, and social mobility. Because I think it's one thing to try and activate change by doing more traditional things like one-on-one -on -one mentorship and things like that. But I mean, even what you guys are doing with this podcast, right? Something like this is you're reaching many more people in a much more efficient fashion. Um, and I think it's the same for investing in social enterprises. You're able to actually help many companies and to help take them to that, to that next level. And that allows you to arguably make a large contribution or at least one which leads to exponential change, uh, which is why I wanted to go into the space. Um, and it's UK focused. They've, they've said they're going to allocate, I think it's 50% of the fund to founders from Bain backgrounds. Again, an area that I'm passionate about helping black people actually have ownership um in our community uh so yeah i mean overall it just kind of ticked all those boxes right so investor manager role impact fund um fame founders um and then also looking at social mobility so trying to actually help people go from a council estate in london to i don't know a huge house in mayfair one day hopefully <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, it just ticks all the right boxes. Um, and as I said, I'm much more focused on my mission now rather than just doing a role which pays the most because I could have gone to a traditional venture capital firm who would have probably paid a decent amount more. Um, tell us a bit more about how you're going to have to leverage all the experience you've had as an investment manager with your mission. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess there's, there's two sides to it. So the, the, the team is... There's, I think, six of us. Yeah, six of us. Um, half the team is focused on venture support. So they actually support the companies once we invest in them. Um, and then half of the team focused on actually analyzing the, the investments and whether or not it's something that we should, like, due diligence, right? I'm sure you guys yeah. with, your, with your backgrounds are aware of the type of stuff you'd be doing. Um, so going through the accounts, making sure that the company would actually be able to grow and have the most impact as possible. And just assessing the applications, really um so the deployment is very much two twofold so it's not again a traditional fund in the sense that it's not just investing in whatever we think can make the most money there's a big element to trying to assess which companies can have the most impact as well right. um although the fund which which um was announced today which is in conjunction with a few other companies um that's more of a grant because of covid so if you're a company which could have a huge impact. The idea why that was set up is coming out of COVID, we're going to need social enterprises to be as strong as possible because they're the enterprises which are going to help people in an altruistic fashion rather than companies that are just thinking about money and will therefore yeah. end up probably cutting people coming out of COVID. Mm -hmm. So this fund is very much a support fund, you could say, for, um, for social enterprises coming out of COVID. Uh, whereas the other fund is, is probably seen more as an investment fund. But again, underpinning the investment side, which I guess has connotations of trying to make as much money as possible, there is a real impact element um, involved. Like I'm, I mean, based on the conversation that I've had, I'm fairly certain we would 
we wouldn't do a deal if we didn't believe there was a genuine um, impact that the company was having in line with the with the mission of what we're trying to do with with access to employment and social yeah. mobility. Yeah, I can see some of that where it says, you know, we encourage people um, with lived experiences to apply. Um, last question on this, um, and it's more to do with the the, the four letter word you mentioned, BAME. Um, you know, quite recently we saw we saw that interview with um, Matt Hancock, and um, he was asked a direct question about how many black people um, when his cabinet, when the government's cabinet, and he was he was referring to um, Asian people um, when he was asked a question about black. This fund is targeting Bain. Um, what do you think will be? What do you think this will translate towards black community and black businesses and organizations? Organizations. Yeah, I mean, I'll be direct and say I don't like the term BAME. Um, I think, so we're, we're, we're an institution that actually wants to ensure that Black, Asian, etc., all get the appropriate amount of support they need. So we use BAME because it's the, it's, it's the word that's used in the industry, but we're a type of company that would actually make sure that the funds are distributed accordingly. The reason I don't like BAME, come back to my original point, is it's a very easy way to actually mask whether or not you're supporting each category under that. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure if you went into any investment bank, um, as an example, you they probably have reasonable BAME stats because yeah. they've got a decent amount of um, Chinese um, or Indian people or and then a few black people scattered around the organization. But the point I'm trying to make is on BAME as, as, the, as, as the stat that they're probably hitting target. But when you break it down into, into black employees and more specifically in, in mid-level manager positions and above, they're probably massively underperforming. Um, and unfortunately, um, in a lot of organizations, the people that sit at the top are doing these initiatives for virtue signaling or just to make sure they don't have a backlash. Yeah. So they're incentivized to actually hide under the BAME umbrella as long exactly. as they tick that box. Every now and again, and I do think Unlimited actually falls into this category, you find a CEO who for some reason has empathy and understands it, whether he's white or not, um, <laughs> and actually makes sure that that breaks down accordingly, um, depending on the different the different races that sit under the BAME, BAME umbrella. So that's one of the reasons I don't like BAME in the context of um, in the context of context of an organisation, in the context of a fund um, deploying capital, um, and then just I guess more from a from a social standpoint, I think the issues you face as a young black man, black woman, are extremely different from the issues you face as a Chinese black man or, or black woman. And I'm not saying that a Chinese person doesn't have prejudice because they definitely do. Um, it's just different prejudice, right? And different prejudice requires different solutions. So there's not really a one size fits all um, way to go about this. Uh, it's the lazy approach, in my opinion, to say, oh, let's just have this BAME category. Sometimes it's not even BAME, sometimes it's even worse. Sometimes it's BAME, women, disabled people all lumped together yeah. in, in, one, in one group. Um, I, I mean, the problems a disabled person has are probably a lot more profound than the problems I'm having uh, a lot of the time, um, but we're all just being lumped in one group. Um, so yeah, I, I come in to, to answer your original question. 
I think we'll, we'll, we'll actually address those issues properly, but I don't actually like the use of the term because I don't think enough organizations are led by people who genuinely want to solve the problem. And because of that, they're going to find the easier way out and using BAME as an umbrella allows them to do that. And how important do you think it is the fact that you were on the other side of the table um, engaging angel investors? Yeah, I, it gives you empathy, right? Mm. Like, I can't imagine myself meeting a founder and being arrogant and all of that kind of stuff because I've been in the position where your, your company's running out of cash and you need to raise money and all of that kind of stuff. So there's a level of, of empathy which you have. And, I, and again, I'm generalizing here just based on all things I've read and podcasts I've listened to and, and just much successful investors who I've spoken to. And it, I, I tend to find the best investors do have empathy. Mm. And, and can kind of relate to the founder, even if they haven't started a business themselves. Um, because a lot of the best businesses will want to work for investors who have a good reputation for being, for having empathy, right? And, and not being arrogant and all of those sorts of things. So I think having started a business, you do realize, yeah, you, you do have a lot more empathy for, for people who are, who are pitching for capital. You do want to help, even if you can't provide financial assistance. You're more inclined to try and refer them to, to, to other people and go the extra mile and all of that kind of stuff. And again, based on everything I've read, that's what makes a good yeah. Um, yeah. investor. So, so yeah, I, I'd say that's probably the key, the key takeaway. But then the other thing I think, uh, and this is, I guess, somewhat falls under empathy, is I, I have a lot of chats with founders about why they actually want to raise venture capital finance. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think a lot of e-commerce businesses could nice small businesses that make you good income without yeah. you trying to shoot for the stars because shooting for the stars also increase your risk right yeah. you're now in a very binary position where your company either has to become huge or it fails more or less nine out of ten times right yeah. whereas you could yeah. probably just slowly build something up which is going to make you a very very stable income you maintain full control of the business um, and you just continue to build that and and i think there's almost it's almost been glamorized by the media mm-hmm. um, that you have to raise millions of pounds and all of that kind of stuff. But there are a lot of businesses that A, shouldn't, um, and B, are very, very successful. And the founder ends up making a better financial return for themselves without mm-hmm. ever taking institutional capital. Um, and having, I guess, been caught in those, in that, in, in that kind of thought process, I'm very keen to have that conversation with, with entrepreneurs because nine out of 10 times, again, they're not actually aware of what they're getting into. They just want the TechCrunch article that says you made <laughs> X amount of money rather than actually think about the practical yeah. side of what that means for the way you have to run your business, the reporting you have to do, the facts you probably have to raise every 12 to 18 months after that. It's a very, very different journey to someone just sitting in an office and hustling and grinding things out every day. How do you actually engage angel investors how did you what's the sort of process um that you went through and you know for a listener that's thinking okay vc may not be right from what i'm hearing maybe angel is right what what would you advise that person yeah um i mean so i i was fortunate because i'd worked in finance you have a network of people who work in finance and if you ask around enough someone knows someone who's an angel investor and and you meet one and then 
they potentially introduce you to another and so on and so forth. Um, we did an accelerator program called True Start, uh, which was a retail focused accelerator program. I don't think it runs anymore, uh, but it was at the time. I know there are a host of other accelerator programs. Um, accelerator programs are a bit hit and miss. So I speak to some founders who massively benefit from them. I speak to some founders who just regret doing it entirely. But they are typically a good way to meet angel investors because most of them will have a demo day at the end. Um, I mean, if I were doing it again, which is probably the easiest way or the best way to answer that question, mm. is I'd start working on my business. So I'd have a deck and I'd start working. I'd start building something, um, even if it's the most basic version, but I'll have something. Um, and then I, I, you have to put your idea into the world, right? You have to go to events and pitch um, and pitch well, obviously. There are enough events. You, you have to get, pl if, if that's the route you want to go down, you want to raise capital, you have to plug yourself into the industry, right? You have to be following all the Twitter profiles um, of people who talk about angel investing. You should be going to networking events that, are, that have to do with angel investing. You should be building a small um, group of other entrepreneurs who are also raising, who would think of you maybe when an, an angel investor turns them down and refer you to that angel investor. It's very much like when you're trying to break into an industry, right? Into a job, get a job in a certain industry. You need to get out there and put yourself out there um, and actually speak to as many people as possible. And then things start to fall in, in, in line. Um, there are a few people now like um, Andy Davis, who's doing the 10 by 10 angel fund, which he tweeted about the other day. And I know quite a few people are committed to now um, that you can directly apply for as well. Um, but that's all just the same thing. It's just, I mean, it's also the same thing, just putting yourself out there. If you expect to, unless you've got some rich uncle, which is another alternative, but I don't think that's available to everyone. Uh, but if you're expecting to work on this amazing idea and someone's just going to come and find your idea and send you an email saying, I want to give you 150 grand, that's typically not how the world works, un unfortunately. Um, so yeah, it's the same principles of you, you get in a, in a standard nine to five, right? You need to put yourself out there, network, have conversations with people. When you meet one person, ask them if there's anyone that they can refer you to and so on and so forth. And just over time, build up a network. Um, I would advise people to, in fact, I would strongly advise people to start doing that um, before they intend to raise, right? So what you don't want to do is you don't want to need funding in the next three months and start building your networks today. Because someone who you meet today is very unlikely going to write you a check straight away. Mm. Um, so the more you can plug yourself into the scene, um, get people who can vouch for you because they've met you a few times. Uh, maybe even have investors who you, who you meet, but then you say, well, I'm not raising now, but I might be in about six months' time. So when you do actually need the capital, you're not starting from scratch and taking six to nine months raising, which causes a huge amount of stress um, on you, particularly if you're, if you're working on this full-time and you haven't actually left your job. I'm sorry, and you have left your job, so you're dependent on it. Um, but yeah, those, that's, that's what I would advise. Um, there's no science to it. You probably talk to 10 different entrepreneurs about how they raise angel funding. You probably get 10 different answers. You know, if you're trying to raise money um, and money may run out in three months, what, what sort of lead time would you give someone? Would you say 12 months before you run out or six months, nine months? What, what sort of rule of thumb would you would you um, advise? Minimum six months. Um, again, a lot of this depends on your, the structure of your business, right? If you're a business that is cash generative mm -hmm. and can fund itself, then you're not really in a rush, right? I mean, don't get me wrong, you want to raise as quickly as possible, 
Yeah. So you're not in a rush in the sense that you're going to die if you don't raise in the next three months. Um, whereas if your business and a lot of venture, these, and this is, I guess, the key distinction between the VC type model and, and building a, a cash generative business is if you're in a VC type model, you do genuinely have a time bomb, right? So, and, and because of that, minimum six months out, you should be looking to sorting out your next round um preferably more than that to be honest with you at least planting the seeds um more than six months out but again it's really contingent on the business model some businesses um they 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 do raise funding but they're not dependent on it the funding is maybe to to expand marketing or to launch a new line but ultimately the business is actually generating um enough cash flow to actually run itself um and the funding is just to kind of i guess boost the business whereas other businesses um like an app business or something they may actually need the funding um, yeah. in order to actually pay the developers and and run the ppc campaigns and all of that kind of stuff could you tell us about forbes yeah so um so how that came about is so i was on one of their 30 and the 30 list in 2017 um and I think they email everyone who's on that list or on any of their lists, to be honest with you. So I'm, I'm not special in any way. Um, and they email people if you want to be a contributing writer. They emailed me to actually write about beauty industry, uh, which I did. I, I knew a lot about the industry um, from a financial standpoint, but I didn't actually know a lot about a huge amount about the products outside of the ones that we were selling. So I actually asked them if I could write about entrepreneurs more broadly um, with the opportunity. So started writing about entrepreneurs. Um, Initially, I actually didn't exclusively focus on black people, but then I decided um, after a while that I'm going to exclusively focus on black people. And the reason for that um, is because I've got a finite amount of time to write. We don't get anywhere near enough coverage in mainstream publications or press like that. So if I'm going to use if I'm going to use time to actually write, which is something I enjoy doing, then I'm going to use it to to write about. A, a segment of society that I think is massively underserved. Um, so I'm making more of a difference than just writing about stuff that was probably going to get covered anyway. It sometimes means I get less views, uh, but I don't really care about that. Um, it's not a, a huge, huge concern to me. Um, and, and I guess the, the direction of the stories is really to feature people, but tell authentic stories, not, oh, this person's done amazingly well, look at their big house and all of this kind of stuff. It's like, no, like, I mean, I did a feature on Tiny Temper recently and the emphasis of the story was very much the fact that he grew up in South London, um, in South London, in Peckham, in a council estate, and then his parents inspired him to actually work hard. And then when he had his one hit, he didn't want to be a one-hit wonder, right? He actually wanted a long, a long career and his work ethic and now some of the ways he's given back. There's very, I mean, if you actually read the article, there's probably less than five lines um, in, in a, I think, eight, nine hundred word article where we're talking about his like music success. What I'm interested in is telling these authentic stories about black people doing amazing stuff because hopefully that inspires a young black person in somewhere like at the, the area I grew up to think, oh crap, if, if this person actually came from this area and they were able to achieve this, then maybe it's not so unrealistic um, for me to achieve that because nine out of ten times the reason people don't achieve things is because they're not willing to go for it because they haven't seen anyone like themselves um, who's done it before so that's why i try and keep the stories as authentic as possible 
um, and not just focus on the person's success, but actually focus on some of the areas where they've um, they've had to struggle a little bit and how they've overcome that. Because um, I think that's what actually inspires people. We all know that the person's already successful and has lots of money. That's not going to suddenly inspire you to do something. It's how it's where they came from and how they got there that's likely to inspire people. And, and that's the actual the primary reason for doing it. And it somewhat ties in with the whole social mobility uh, or scalable social mobility stuff. Um, which I mentioned earlier in the call around why I wanted to work in, in impact investment. And just talking about Forbes, because um, I read the Tiny Temper piece, um, and I noticed the nuances as well. Um, it really wasn't much about his music, it was more about his businesses and family and where he grew up, um, and I loved it. Another piece that I loved even more, top 25 black British businesses, um, which you know we're all about here on this podcast. Um, I looked at it, and obviously you've had a lot of views on it, and it's very spot on. Um, what made you to um, what well, you've mentioned that? But how did you go about putting that together and reaching out to to all these people? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question actually, because there was a lot of confusion. I got some backlash on Twitter because people thought I was I was listing it as in these are the top 25 black people in business in the UK. That's not the case. I mean, there are guys who have started businesses in the UK who are, who are worth millions and millions of pounds, right? Um, it, the, the list was people to follow. So those are 25 people who are relatively outspoken on Twitter, which yeah. is actually one of the reasons it was a relatively young list. Because a lot of the old guard who are a lot more successful, partly because of the era, the, the, the era that they grew up in, um, and yeah. sometimes the jobs that they do, they're not very outspoken. So the real, I mean, the, the idea behind the article was we're in a moment where a lot of people from other demographics are trying to understand why black people feel this way or why they're frustrated. And I just figured one of the easiest ways that you could actually educate yourself is to follow people who are outspoken and putting, putting the right content out there. Um, yeah. So the idea was really to build a list, a diverse list as well. So I didn't just want to have 25, like, I don't know, tech entrepreneurs or, or 25 people who work in venture capital. The idea was to have a relatively diverse list of outspoken people who you could follow if you're interested in learning about, um, about black business generally. Um, and the secondary reason for actually putting out was one of the things, so I've had a few conversations with friends um, who called me asking to have a chat about the whole BLM movement and stuff. And they always say, oh, I don't know any businesses owned by black people. So, well, yeah, because you haven't looked. So um, that's <laughs> why I decided to just publish a short list of 25. And I emphasize it in the introduction to the article that this list is not extensive or exhaustive at all. Um, it's a drop in the ocean. There are many, many businesses out there, um, or entrepreneurs out there, sorry, um, who are doing fantastic things. Um, many people working in finance, law, consulting, all doing amazing things. Um, and I, I try and do a lot of research on this in, for the articles. Um, and, and those 25 were very much just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and I did put a Twitter poll out there so that if people wanted to nominate people, they could actually nominate people. So a few of the people were just people who were very, very popular um, with the nominations. Um, I did vet the nominations to make sure it didn't seem like it was coming from friends as well. And there were some people who surprised me in the sense that when I actually, they got nominated a lot and I went through their profile and realized this person's been very outspoken. 
some lot of panels and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, there were a few different methods. Um, but the, the main idea behind it was here's a list of 25 black business people that you could see are doing cool stuff, one. Um, and yeah. secondly, you should follow them if you actually want to to get up to speed on on, on some businesses in the black community and what they're doing and, and all of that kind of stuff. How do you think um, as a community we can continue to you know highlight ourselves and get more visibility out there? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time. The attention is definitely on the demographic, though you could argue it's fizzled a bit in the last couple of weeks. But the attention is there. Um, I, I think something which does need to follow on from the attention is substance. Um, now's the time to ask for stuff, right? I know it sounds, people don't like, people have pride, right? They don't want to ask for stuff. If you're working in an investment bank and you sit on the diversity committee, now is the time to say we need X amount of black people mm. being hired into this division, right? If you're, ben, if you're an associate in a venture capital firm, and you've barely spoken to the founding partner and now he wants to, or she wants to have a conversation with you about this whole thing. Now's the time to say, I, I really think we should invest 5%, let's say, into black businesses over the next year. Or, or I really think we should sponsor this organization that's trying to get more black people into venture capital. Or I think we should try and do an internship maybe for one black undergraduate this summer. Now's the time to ask for stuff, right? So it's, I, I don't want to call it prideful because I think it's human nature, but... Um, Asking for stuff is going to actually create action, which is how we actually get stuff which has substance. I'm yeah. sorry, but I don't know, some books floating to the top of the bestseller list is fantastic. Don't get me wrong, people educate themselves and create awareness, but we need tangible things um, which people are willing to commit to. And that's how we're going to actually drive change. Um, we've kind of, we've, phase one has been done, let's say, with the awareness. Now we need to kick into phase two, phase three, um, where tangible, action gets done and more importantly tangible action actually gets recorded and we can evaluate it in a year or two years time and hold people accountable um, who aren't actually doing that i am optimistic um i've seen a lot of people not just young um people but a lot of senior people which i feel is at this stage at least on, in terms of substance more important I've seen a lot of senior people in, in, in law firms, in banks, um, in the tech industry, openly yeah. talk about this subject, which isn't actually a very British thing to do. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm quite optimistic. Um, I just hope that there's structure around it uh, as well. Just because, yeah, I mean, gestures are great, but gestures are forgotten quite easily, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. and they're not sustainable. Well, you know, hopefully we do have something like this. Um, Robert Smith in, in the, uh, the US, the black billionaire, he's, he suggested, you know, having a, a 2% model where corporates and banks um, pledge 2% of you know, their investments and everything else, specifically towards black businesses. Um, so something like that, hopefully, you know, we have in the near future. But it's been an absolute pleasure, Tommy. Um, for, our, for our listeners, where can they find you it's not a hard thing online but what's best channels to get you on yeah so twitter is by far the best channel um my handle is tommy asc 91 um it, for people who don't have twitter linkedin um i do i'm pretty active on linkedin or well, i don't post on there but i do um message people and reach out to people on there as well 
Um, and yeah, I mean, if anyone's listening who has a, a good pitch for an article, they're doing something important that they'd want to highlight. I'm, as as most people who follow my articles would know, I'm, I don't just feature people who who are very, very successful. Actually, most of my articles are about relatively early stage entrepreneurs because those are the ones I actually feel um, don't get their message out enough. Um, so yeah, if anyone has a, an article or anything, they can reach out to me on Twitter or, or LinkedIn as well. It's been absolute Thank you for listening to the We're Building Podcast, where we showcase the best of black-owned businesses in the UK. You've been on with Daniel Pedu and Godman Usman. New episodes will be released bi-weekly. You can catch us across all social media platforms at We're Building Podcast. Stay tuned.